Hello, and welcome to another episode of Full Circle, a healthcare podcast by Aventus Whole Health. I'm your host, Kim Howell. We consistently hear about burnout in the healthcare industry, specifically in regards to our area of long-term care. But what is the origin story of this burnout? And is it fair to call it burnout? Why does work feel the way it does? And can we change it for the better for future clinicians? You're joining us for episode one of a two-part series to answer those very questions. This week, Dr. Will Sampson is sitting down with Dr. Ginny Byrne. Dr. Byrne is the co-founder and chief patient officer at Belong Health. Dr. Byrne is a self-described clinical translator who helps to connect the dots between people and complex segments of the healthcare system. Her most recent work, Work Smart, User Brain and Behavior to Master the Future of Work explores how psychology, neuroscience, and humanism can help humans to change the future of work for the better. Listen in as Dr. Sampson and Dr. Byrne discuss the history of work, the structure of work in the healthcare landscape, and the factors that have led to clinician moral injury in this era of the healthcare landscape. Joining us today is Dr. Jenny Byrne. She is a brain and behavior specialist and co-founder of Belong Health. She's also been an advisor to startups and a prolific poster on social media and author. And it's a delight to have you with us today, Jenny. Oh, thank you so much. It's great to be here. You've definitely done a lot of thinking about work in healthcare and how physicians and others do their best work and maybe even find meaning in their work. I'm curious how you assess where we are today in healthcare, in terms of the work of healthcare and how we got here. What do you think about where we are right now? So I think where we are in healthcare actually has some parallels to where people in other fields sense they're at, which is they feel unfortunately, like a cog in a machine, or they feel like somebody on an assembly line. And I think in healthcare, that's particularly pronounced because we are such a ethical, mission-driven profession. I say physicians or nurses, I sometimes use them interchangeably, so forgive me if I say physicians, but it's actually all clinicians. So we feel like cogs in a machine, and it feels pretty bad. And I think most people in jobs in America also feel that way. How did we get here? Outside of medicine, this shift in the way people see work, especially in the United States, really came around the turn of the century in the early 1900s. And it started with Henry Ford and the Ford factory. And before that, if you think about, you know, Dickens and people who wrote in the 1800s about all the industrialization and the terrible work hours and children laboring and people were working around the clock. And there were some social movements that had this idea like we shouldn't work around the clock. We should work eight hours. And so this idea came up in England, but no one took them seriously until Henry Ford. And Henry Ford decided to start regulating the schedule of work because he thought he could get better workers. He thought if he offered eight-hour workdays, five days a week, that was wildly improved on most people's factory experience, and he would get great talent, and he did, and he was hugely successful, and then the nine-to-five was born. Before that, people didn't really typically work nine-to-five. If you were wealthy, you didn't work. You had leisure, and that was considered the pinnacle of achievement to actually not work. And the people who had to work worked themselves to the bone and typically died very early. So this kind of nine to five started with Henry Ford. And then with World War II, it became this very dominant model of work. I'm realizing that I have personally thought of Henry Ford's innovation being the assembly line and efficiency. And I think that missing the innovation in the workday is maybe precisely 
Like I'm part of the problem if I don't think about the true innovation being a behavioral innovation. Yeah, well, most people think of the factory floor, which I would argue is still part of what we experience today is that feeling of being a factory worker, right? We don't like that. But yeah, he was innovative and he was actually quite generous in how he treated people and took care of them, which was an innovation. But the fact that you've forgotten it and that I didn't know it until I did research and most people don't know it, is because it's just become so deeply ingrained in who we are that it's become an assumption. It's the assumption that that's how things are supposed to be. But most people are like you. They don't really think about it, right? Mm -hmm. You have weekends, you have nine to five, like that's normal. Everything that's not that is quote unquote not normal. So healthcare was very similar and a little bit of a delayed path. So in healthcare, my best example comes from I have one physician in my family who was my maternal grandfather. He was a pediatrician and he trained in the 1930s and practiced in the post-war period. And he had an office, but he was out in people's homes. So the predominant model of care pre-World War II was really house calls. If you had money to see a doctor, and remember most people did not, the doctor would come to your house and treat you at home. They didn't typically have a lot of medicines to offer you. What they were really offering you was healing. They were offering you and your family healing of what to expect with what you were experiencing, how to ease suffering and pain. Most of the time they couldn't cure things. They really were there to heal. And I would say that that feeling of healing when we talk about what's going on now is what's missing. The connectedness between two human beings and the feeling of healing is what I think we're all desiring and we're not getting, both as patients and as physicians or clinicians, and as families. So the idea was back then, physicians, other folks went to the home typically to provide care. Hospitals came out of poor houses. So hospitals came out of monasteries and nunneries that had a sick ward, right, where the the nuns or the monks who were old and sick would go, and they had people to take care of them. So it was really more a charitable function to have poor hospitals. So in the post-World War II era, hospitals took on this whole other meaning because now we had all these treatments that we could use and we wanted to gather the talent, the human talent, together in one place so we could most efficiently deliver that high quality new level of care, which we couldn't do before. So the hospitals kind of pulled everybody together in one building or one place. But again, remember, most physicians, like my grandfather, spent their time a little bit in the office, a little bit in people's homes, and a little bit in the hospital. So the hospital kind of grew in importance, and there was a lot of like economic and social reasons that happened. And then it started to feel like an assembly line, right? The efficiencies from the hospital and now the clinics also feel like assembly lines. And I'll tell you where like my pet peeve is the little rooms that they make you go in and the fact that that's actually called rooming, that there's actually something called rooming a patient. I think that's personally one of my pet peeves. And when I had my own practice, I swore nobody would ever get roomed. The word room as a verb really does sound kind of transgressive when you, when you just stop and think about it. I just can't believe that we still do this, right? I mean, talk about where we are today. We still put people in these little rooms, a series of little rooms, half naked on a piece of paper, Mm -hmm. cold, waiting for Mm -hmm. someone to come in and talk to them for five minutes. I mean, 
nobody likes that. That's that's not a win for anybody. Part of my role in my organization is training and onboarding new clinicians, new to us. And mm-hmm. one of the things I do every two weeks as people start is talk about why they're here. Why are they why do they choose a career in healthcare? Why do they want to work with folks in long-term care? And everyone cites this desire to heal, to connect yes. to others, a passion for that. And so I, I obviously nothing has changed about the motive, but where they're coming, their destination means that it's going to take some work to actually do that. When I was training in the 90s, it was right as hospitalists were beginning to mm-hmm. be a thing. And I watched residents make choices about what kind of care they were going to provide. And there was a lot of incentive for following that kind of specialty. If you're a talented internal medicine provider, you know, what you do with your time you follow incentives. Okay, so we have this change in what's available in terms mm-hmm. of taking care of people. We have other incentives that sort of cement this thing that's not where people started with healthcare. Right. The, the motives seem in the right place, but it's been decades now. What, right. Wh- why, why do we keep going this direction? I think there's a couple reasons that we keep going this direction. I feel like we're kind of banging our head on the wall sometimes. The first, I believe, is that there's a fundamental lack of translation between the business of medicine and the people who do the medicine, the healers. There's a fundamental lack of translation. I don't believe people are malintentioned. I don't believe the finance guys or women are are malintentioned. I don't believe the operations people are malintentioned. But there's a really fundamental disconnect. And there's not that many people who can translate. That's one of the things I really try to do is translate between the different parts of the system so that people can see that they can both meet their goals. You can be a healer and you can have an efficient clinic. They're not mutually exclusive. So I think the lack of translation, and that really comes with clinical leadership and giving clinical leadership the tools and the power to have a real seat at the table, not just a token seat. Like you really are part of the leadership team. I think that is part of it. I think the other part is we're just human beings and we are all doing the same stupid, irrational stuff. And part of that is biases and assumptions. And we all, like we just talked about that nine to five, we all just kind of made this assumption, like we should work nine to five and you just forget to challenge it. So there's so many things like rooming, like who says you have to room patients? Like there's no law written down that says for you to treat someone, you have to room them. There's no law that says I can only charge you every time you come in to see me for a visit. There's no there's no law, right? We just have so many assumptions and it's hard to challenge assumptions because it requires stepping back, being willing to kind of get a little messy and to put stuff on the table and say, where are we making assumptions? And some of those are so deeply ingrained, it's really hard to see. So I think that's another part of it. And then I think the third part is that Clinicians have been kind of tricked. We've been kind of tricked into thinking that our value is our ability to know what medicines do or tricked into the idea that our value is in knowing the right algorithm for hypertension. That's not our value. (laughs) Our value is to know those things and to know our patients and to know the ethical responsibilities of the profession and to put it all together and come up with something that's individualized for the person in the situation. So the algorithms and all that is really just part of it, but we've been kind of tricked into thinking that's how we provide value. And so we kind of go along with it, even when deep down we know it's not right. 
because we're scared that if AI can do the algorithm better than we can, well, then what's our value? We've forgotten what our value is, that it's the ethical and the personalized and the healing that comes along with being a clinician. You referred to we several times, and I think that for me, sort of understanding the role of organizations, the role of leaders, the role of individual clinicians, both how those weave together and how we understand the role of each of those folks, because I do think that there probably are differences between where responsibility lies for creating the circumstances that could lead to something different. Yeah, but we touched on this before. So I think the physician or the other clinician, you know, we talked about the role of taking care of yourself. I do think our culture does not support us taking care of ourselves. And I actually just wrote a little piece on that for later this week. It just doesn't. Our culture is a very stoic culture. It's one where mental health was not discussed. Physicians and clinicians are not supposed to make mistakes ever. I literally was trained thinking you never, ever make a mistake. I mean, think about that for a minute. Never. Mm -hmm in your life. <laughs> it's not that kind of culture to take care of yourself. So we're battling the culture a little bit. I think it's getting a little better since when I was there, but it is the culture and we don't take care of ourselves and we just don't. And I say we, I mean, you know, I certainly did not take care of myself for a long time. I showed up once at the hospital hacking up a lung and they were like, what are you doing here? You're going to kill all these poor people at this hospital. And I was like, I don't know. Why am I here? Like, I just thought that's what I was supposed to do. <laughs> so I think we do have a role to take care of ourselves. Leadership, I think, has the role to translate between the different parts of the organization. They are the voice of the clinicians who are working day in and day out, and they are responsible to translate that voice, but they are also responsible to have empathy for people who are not clinicians. And sometimes that's hard. So empathy for the finance team, empathy for the operations team, really putting yourself in their shoes and thinking, well, what's their day like? What's important to them? And then learning how to be that translator and to push back, you know, in a way that is going to make change. And that's not easy. It, it's not an easy role. I think the other parts of the organization have a responsibility to challenge assumptions. I think they have a responsibility to be good listeners and to also try to have empathy. But I have to say, most people I work with are very well-intentioned and they just truly cannot understand the professional and ethical code of a clinician. And so even they try to be empathetic, they really have a hard time. So I think personally, efficiency and making money in a sustainable way is not counter to providing healing. I think they can both happen together, but it requires everybody challenging assumptions and getting uncomfortable, you know, and, and seeing things in a, in a slightly different way. And sometimes it's not money. That's the other thing. People jump to the conclusion very quickly that it's all about money. And I always say physicians and clinicians are not primarily driven by money. If we were, we wouldn't do this. We're all intelligent enough to get through school. Like we could go out and do something else. I could make 10 times more money than I do right now. Yes, money is a token of value and it matters. And we do have a crap ton of student loans. By the way, I just paid mine this year, so I'm celebrating. Congratulations. Finally, just in time for a kid to go to college. <laughs> but, you know, it's not all about the money. And if you think the only way to motivate clinicians is through money, you will continually fail. It has a lot more to do with how they feel when they show up every day. And the feeling does not come from money. Yes, it helps. You need to have a decent wage and you need to be respect them. But if you think it's all about the money, you are not going to win. 
Thank you again for joining us for part one of this two-part series with Dr. Jenny Byrne. You can look forward to the next episode next Tuesday at noon. Thank you.